I'm so pleased you've joined us for another episode of the After Dinner Leadership Podcast, where I can introduce you to my guest, Tom Russell. Tom is the founder of a creative agency called Inky Thinking. He is also the author of a book called Meet with Impact. So no surprise that we talk a lot about meetings of all sorts of variations. So that's meeting people where they are, meeting high standards of behavior, meetings that meet the desired outcomes. And for those facilitators out there, one of the little bonus elements of this episode is you get some recommendations on which are the best flip chart markers to carry around with you. That's something to listen out for, for sure. And I hope you enjoy this uh, episode as much as I did. Uh, please feel free to share it and like and follow and all those lovely things that help us to reach even more people. Enjoy. And welcome, Tom Russell, to our After Dinner Leadership podcast. It's good to be with you. Thank you, Simon. Yeah, good to see you again. Great. And uh, we, were, we were just talking, it's been about 20, over 20 years that we've known each other. We haven't worked with each other a lot over that time, but uh, we've been around each other in that period. And, and you were one of my first kind of key clients all that time ago, <laughs> which was great to work with you back then and glad to see your, your business success and, and uh, excited to talk with you tonight. Um, now, one of the, the traditions we have is to fire a set of quick fire questions at you. One minute. Concise answers are perfectly fine. And uh, just to get to know you in a slightly different way. Okay. Are you ready for those? Yeah, let's go for it. Name. Tom Russell. Organization. Inky thinking. What is your go-to karaoke song? Daydream Believer. What is a quality you admire in others? Honesty and integrity. Great. If you could speak any language, which would it be? Japanese. <laughs> which book from your childhood was your favourite? Danny, the champion of the world. What is your favourite food to eat at this time of year? Chocolate. <laughs> what motivates you the most? Um, just making a difference to others, a positive difference. Great. Uh, oh, there we go. We're done. We're done. That's good. Nice one. Okay, day, daydream believer. I'm not going to ask yeah. you to sing it now, Tom. No. But, uh, what what took you there? What, it's, why, uh, why that song? It's a happy song. It's just it's just a feel good, probably a fairly cliche karaoke choice, um, but uh, it's one that I've I, I've murdered on several occasions. <laughs> Great stuff. And uh, the language Japanese. Do you know? Yes, and that was a, that was a funny one. Um, I guess there could be a number, but it just strikes me as being quite a tricky language to to learn and understand and also i can imagine not though i've not been to japan being in in japan where people have told me that you know if you don't speak japanese or understand it then it can be really quite a uh, a strange place to be because it's very difficult to get any visual information at least yes. written information to understand so maybe that would be useful my very first trip there uh, to Tokyo was maybe about 15, 20 years ago. And, and um, 
it and then I went again a couple of years back and um they were setting up for the Olympics and it and Tokyo itself was a lot easier to get around right. in preparation for the Olympics because there's a lot more English references <laughs> on yes. signage for the first time absolutely it was a it was a really humbling experience and I'm really pleased I had it which was feeling completely alien yes and having a greater appreciation of what that actually feels like because English we're very um well not only English speaking but also <laughs> probably being from England we're kind of very used to other people Yes, uh, modifying their language for us, and it was absolutely really nice to be in that situation of, oh wow, I genuinely have to kind of find another way of communicating and getting around uh, the city. Yeah. yeah, um, and then Danny, the champion of the world, you you, hmm. you had a kind of a I don't know, there's a child childlike smile. It seemed to kind of trigger a memory in some way. What 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 was it about that book? That yeah, well, I mean, Roald Dahl isn't a wonderful author anyway. I think I just it was the charm of Danny, the champion of the world, and the pheasants, and I think it was the the sultanas or raisins soaked in alcohol, and it was just cheeky and fun. But the relationship between uh, Danny and his father was uh, was just expressed so nicely. So yeah, a lovely book, lovely story. Yeah, very good. Good. Well, thank you for for sharing uh, those those insights there. That's that's great. And um, tell us a little bit about inky thinking. What um what how would how do you describe inky thinking to to a, say a new client or someone yeah. that asks you what your business is about? Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess inky thinking is essentially a a, a creative group of people. You could describe us as a creative agency, for example. And essentially what we do is we work with clients in a variety of different sectors, uh, helping them to communicate well and to make an impact um, through visual information. And, you know, the way we create visual information is primarily through illustration, whether that's done digitally or on pen and paper, uh, through animations. It could be a number of different things, but it's, essentially it's about helping people to explain things well. Yeah. I love I I love following you on LinkedIn and and you know uh, for those that haven't um, seen I encourage you to follow the the site and go on the website and see some of the examples of the work you do with your clients it's brilliant work and Thank uh, you. I love the way yeah, it it's... captures the essence of whatever the meetings are that you're in it's great yeah it's good fun yeah where did the passion for that because when we first met you were an HR manager at Volvo Cars and um, <laughs> Uh, I was providing some training for you and your people within within the staff there, which was thoroughly enjoyable. But I don't have a recollection of you drawing anything or mm. being, you know, illustrating in any in any form. Then, what? Where did this? How did you get onto that path? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I get asked this quite a lot, and um, so I was in HR for fifteen years. So when you and I knew each other, that I guess that was earlier on in my career. Um, and the only artistic thing I can point to other than a GCSE in art is that my mum and dad, when, before they retired, were graphic designers, used to work from home. So the, you know, the, it was always there. And I guess they, always, they had the top floor so I could nip up into the studio, as it was called, and pinch pens and paper and... Uh, and just get kind of immersed in that area and see the work that they were doing. It was corporate identity and packaging, that kind of work. And this was before computer-aided design came along. So it was yes. all pen and, you know, hand-drawn stuff. Um, and they're artists. They continue to be artists. So I think that's rubbed off um, 
appreciation of art and design um, and good good quality communication and particularly good quality imagery. And uh, zipping along to sort of the latter part of my HR career, having you know always having this interest in the visual arts, um, uh, somebody came along to a a meeting I was hosting on resourcing at Cancer Research UK, where I was uh, HR director there. And um, this lady Karen, her name was, came along and drew using graphic recording, a technique I'd never heard of before. Um, the key points of our conversation, and I can I can very much remember the yes. watching Karen draw this out. I can't really remember much of the meeting because at the <laughs> time it was wow, it's like wow, this is a really cool thing to do. Um, you know, it's not fine art, but it's certainly listening and synthesizing the information and making it appealing. So that really gave me some inspiration to find out more, uh, and I took myself off to. The Grove Consultants, which is based in San Francisco, uh, yeah. where a lot of thinking around graphic facilitation has come from. I did, did about a week of um, training in San Francisco, which was good fun, and and then took it from there, essentially. And it's now 10 years since Thinky Thinking has been uh, established. And uh, one doesn't need to be a, an, an illustrator in terms of background or academic background a lot of it comes from just an ability to listen well be able yeah. to synthesize that information and um, help make others make sense of it yeah well congratulations on on making that transition and seeing such a successful outcome as well will continue to be successful for your clients that's great news thank you um Tom, we'd love to hear from each of our guests what three leadership <clears throat> lessons do you wish you'd learned earlier you've obviously you've you're running your own um, agency now, but you've previously, you know, um, had responsibility at a pretty senior level in various organisations. It'd be lovely to hear what lessons you'd, you you've learned in the, in that uh, in that journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this was this was a, a challenge to to think about mainly because you know there's been quite a lot of experiences under my belt as anyone is, yeah. I guess, at this stage in in their uh, in their career i think uh, an early one that um springs to mind is uh, a time when i uh, joined an organization relatively early on in my career although it was one of more my first management if you like positions the learn if you like is a combination of taking observing yourself taking things personally um but also the value of understanding where people are coming from and, and you know, almost meeting people where they are, um, and it's that latter one about meeting people where they are, which I think has been super helpful, particularly in the time at Inky Thinking. But the scenario was was joining um, uh, an organisation at the time, and that my arrival didn't go down particularly well with one particular member of the team, yeah. um, to an extent that the that person chose to. To, to leave for whatever reason, but but made quite a spiteful uh, comment on on email to the whole organisation about myself. Yes, um, uh, one that was completely unexpected and I guess un, unwarranted, um, and it was quite a shock actually to uh, to process that and to 
face other people in the organization, many of whom are your, you know, your peers or you know, people you're working with and for, and to know how to process that yeah. and to be able to take the positive learnings from that. So that was that was quite tricky. And so where it's led me was to, I guess, try and really focus on time on understanding where people are coming from and not necessarily make assumptions, but yeah. to show willing to meet people where they are and find out what's important for them. Let me understand that a little bit more, Tom. So the, the is is that particular point that you could have invested time before that person left in those efforts or your your ability to be able to process the let's say spiteful comment more of more constructively i think it's both simon to be fair right. um i guess i was early on in my sort of management career so you know i'd, I'd had some hr experience under my belt post graduation yeah. um but it was probably one probably the first time where there was a team leadership element a team management element in that in that role uh, maybe and i guess i didn't get the time to explore that with this individual which is one thing i really would have loved to have done even yeah. just for learning's sake um so so a lack of i guess feedback from that person to understand well what you know what could have been different what might i have uh done differently so as to avoid that reaction so that you know that would that would have been ideal to to yeah. really invest the time had that opportunity arisen but also just looking back at my own reaction to that although it's maybe a, a quite an extreme example to do my best to try and not take things as personally as i might but also to you know in in invest time in upfront in relationships with people but there are going to be times when and there have been times when things have not always been great and to invest time in understanding well, what, what does that mean and just try and make sense of it yeah yeah i think it's really helpful advice your your phrase meeting people where they are i hmm. kind of have a sense of what that means what does it what does that mean to you yeah i think for me it means making an effort to understand others um not just to rely on what you see, but also to to explore and show interest. And it's easy to make assumptions, um, but it's not always necessarily the most productive path to follow. Well, thanks for sharing that. I mean, we may come back and talk to that some more. Maybe could you give me just a high level of point two and three, and then I see where we spend some time on on that. What what's the what's those points, and then we'll dig dig into them. The, the, the next one, uh, this was a, a quote that I heard mentioned by one of my clients a while ago, some time back, and that is, the standard you walk by is the standard you accept, which yeah. essentially means, I guess, to me is that, you know, if you're, um, if you're prepared to tolerate something that is, for example, bad behavior or, or, you know, something that is unacceptable, then that says quite a lot about you as a leader, as much as it does about the other person or whatever's going on. So that's, yeah. that's quite a key one. So, so the third one, and I probably feel like a, a bit of a quote machine at the moment, was uh, another <laughs> one that came from a very early manager, manager of mine. It's one that stuck with me both personally and uh, in, in work, which is, you can live with decision, but not within decision. And yeah. that's done me well, I think. Great. 
Okay, yeah. So let's let's go back to the standard you walk by, to the standard you accept. Let's just pick that apart a little bit more. I mean, in terms of this being one of the lessons that you have have learned from, was there a period where that wasn't the case, or just a, a realize that yeah, where where are you on that journey of walking by or or like yeah. standard setting? Yeah, I think on a general level, looking back, particularly in, from an HR career to start with there are always going to be times where a leader or a manager encounters scenarios or behavior uh, which may not always meet the standard that's required, whether that's a personal standard or a company standard, uh, you know, it, it could be a number of things. So it's, it's, it's something that as a, uh, particularly early on as a leader or a manager, one could encounter maybe quite quickly, and then there is a decision point to make about, you know, where do I stand on this? There have been times where it's been tempting to just let something go, but that may not always be the the ideal solution. Yeah, there's a lovely overlap here with, that comes up quite frequently in, in these conversations I have around difficult conversations and deciding whether to engage or not, or to let something ride. And I think this is a really good part. You talked about honesty and integrity being characteristics that you really admire in others. I think this is a space that could easily, you know, where's the standard on that? And it, you know, not everyone has the same standard of, you know, the, someone's view of honesty, integrity, and being true to that might be slightly different to yours or mine. You know, there's kind of the different levels of, you know, you think it's kind of universal, but um, there's still some gray in there that you yes. need to navigate, isn't there? And it's interesting, the personal standards that you have here, and then there's also the corporate ones that you might have. Say, for example, an HR manager has got a, almost like a duty to protect certain policies, procedures, these mm. kind of things. And then there's, mm. um, did you find any t tensions in your career around that? I guess an early learn for me was just to understand that lead, leadership does not always mean being mates with everybody. When, when things are great, that's okay. And when things are not necessarily or things become tricky or maybe there may be differences of opinion, that approach doesn't always uh, gel. Okay, so your third point that you've got is around living with decision, not indecision. Yeah. Ken, could you just give me the, the paragraph explanation of that one? Yeah, I think it was probably even a throwaway comment from my manager at the time, but it, but it stuck. At the time, I guess I, was not, I wasn't in a leadership position. But it was it was really helpful just in terms of helping me to both make decisions myself, but also to coach and help others to make decisions and and surface the the implications of those decisions. And maybe later on in my in my time as a leader, it helped me just to ground the fact that indecision, which isn't easily explained, can create uncertainty and sometimes anxiety for others. And so there may actually be times when indecision is the right thing, or it could even be because there isn't enough information at the time to make that decision. It's about signposting, Simon, I think, is what I'm trying to say yeah. here. Yeah. That you can signpost a decision and help people understand why that decision has been made. And there are also times when maybe a decision isn't always clear and signposting why that is the case and helping others to, to understand that, I think, is key. Simply decision and decision on its own is not enough from my perspective as a leader. People need, in many respects, to understand you're working out. How did we get here? I think that brings people 
much further with a leader than just simply seeing things as black and white. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Now, you, I want to link this last point. Maybe some of the other bits would come through on this as well. You've spent a lot of time studying meeting effectiveness. You've written a book uh, around meetings with impact, which is very powerful, bringing in some of the tools and skills that you've learned over the years around facilitating, but also the kind of graphically recording these meetings. And of course, for many people, the the one of the primary areas in which they make some key decisions is in meetings with other people. It's not just their own personal uh, decision they're making, mm. but they're trying to come to a, a strategic um, set of priorities, or you know they they're trying to decide what to do in very complex uh, situations, what their best course of action would be. What advice would you give to someone to help them with the decision making end of uh, of their meeting so that the group can come to a, an agreement that uh, on what to do and how to move forward? Um, I think in any meeting, the outcome is always the key thing to be clear on before you start any conversation. So you know, being absolutely crystal clear on what are the one, two outcomes that this meeting is here to achieve. And, and that could be making a decision on what, X, whatever the the topic at hand is. Um, so that's, I think, always the, the holy grail of any meeting, be clear on outcomes. I think another thing, particularly where decision making is concerned, is that it's very tempting, particularly where important decisions are made, to invite people to your meetings who might think like you, who might you know, generally agree with your perspective on life on the topic at hand. So whilst it might feel that it goes against the grain, inviting participants who may hold different perspectives and will potentially pose a challenge and a constructive challenge to to that perspective will lead to richer results better decisions decisions that stick there's a, a book called the um medici effect and uh, in that book it talks about the intersection and that uh, good decisions come where there's almost an intersection of people with very different perspectives and uh, uh, and experience and that that's where you get really strong innovative productive ideas so be clear on outcomes uh, and make sure you've got good varied number of perspectives in the room to make that decision great what difference does having clear outcomes make to getting more effective decisions would you say why is that such a critical your number one bit of advice I think it's about focus, Simon. There are so many meetings generally that people attend without a clear understanding of what that meeting is there to achieve. That just by having outcomes focuses people on why they're there and how they can contribute to that. I would suggest clear outcomes or rather recommend strongly uh, clear outcomes for, for any meeting. But it is primarily about focus. What are we here to do and what do we need to have done by the time we leave the meeting yeah. yeah and the ideation phase of any discussion you know there's various tools that people are probably quite familiar with what do you like to recommend or or see used to try and people help people with the convergent phase of the thinking to kind of get right we've got four ideas and we've got some partisan feelings in the room about the way that we should move forward and um, how, how do you help or how have you seen groups move beyond 
that to uh, a decision that they're all happy with? Are there any mechanisms that you use for that or any other devices to support that yeah, phase of decision-making? Absolutely. I mean, there are, there are lots of tools and techniques one could use when um, decision-making in, in terms of being clear on your criteria, for example. So when you do have a range of options in front of you, you're completely clear on you know what criteria you're selecting them with. You know, voting is often a key one, for example, and we've probably all been in meetings where there's been dot voting, for example, and, and there's been a focus on consensus, for example. And that's not to exclude, you know, potentially the lone voice in the room, because that lone voice could actually have the key to something really important. Um, it may be, for example, looking at that range of potential decisions from the point of view of other key stakeholders who may or may not be in the room. For example, they could be customers yeah. or um, partners, suppliers, whatever it might be. But in fact, actually, Simon, I'd suggest going back before you get to that um, convergent stage to to think about how much time are, are you actually spending thinking about what potential solutions might be. And in the book, it talks about uh, stretching. So quite often in meetings, there's a, a start point and a desire to diverge. But very quickly, what happens is there's a desire to converge. And at that point where divergence becomes convergence, it's often very helpful just to hold it out there to encourage participants to think more deeply about, for example, the solutions that have already been identified or what else there might be, um, to think about things from another's perspective. And some of that can be yeah. really quite difficult and not always popular. But actually, it means that the options that one comes to in that sort of convergent stage are often um, more robust and uh, more, I guess more likely to work. Yeah, I think it's, this is where there's, it, as with many things, there's kind of these tensions at play here around, for example, this almost this sense of like, right, we've got to make a decision. There's an impatience. Mm. Let's move to decision. And your statement earlier was kind of of that sense, like a decision is better than no decision. Mm. But but there's also a threshold where we could rush it and we can end up having something that actually then doesn't get implemented very well or people haven't bought into. And so, yes, we've made a decision, but then yeah. um, no one's acting on it because it's not a very good one or or they haven't felt bought in. So there is a really interesting space, yeah, which we have to occupy in terms of getting that threshold right and the nature of the, the conversation. Again, I'd, I'd love it if you've got any thoughts or insights, you know, working within that spectrum perhaps of good decision-making and the, the appropriate time spent on these phases that you mentioned? I think one thing I would say is that not every meeting needs this time spent really holding the group out there to explore decisions. There might be, there are many meetings, whether they're, you know, project meetings or you know, team meetings or whatever, they don't always require that time. I think it's about yeah. being selective. And you know, as I said, go back to your outcomes you know, what are those outcomes you wish to achieve? And it may be that there are some decisions that you, you need to make or what, that are important for an organization which warrant that time spent, spending a little more time just really looking at the details from different angles, for example. So I think it's a choice point. You know, does the, the impact of the decision we're going to make warrant that extra time? And it doesn't have to be super long. It could be 
you know, just an extra half an hour, for example, just thinking more deeply about what those potential options might be. And that may yeah. be all that's needed. Great. Thank you, Tom. I, I appreciate that. Now, one of the things which going through your book, which I've, I've really appreciated, is a lot of the tools are associated with visualizing the problem um, or visualizing the challenge. It's not necessarily a problem, the opportunity, You're trying to kind of capture what's going on in people's heads so you can collectively see it as well. And, and I, I mean, one that lends to your skills associated with the visual design and and uh, that your team are involved in but genuinely even if you didn't do that a meeting that helps to create in front a, a common understanding of what the issues are that we're facing so that we're not just working off our individual notebooks seems to you know in my own practice and, and seeing how teams operate i think when people do that it seems to break a um, down a, a lot of barriers and and or make it more obvious what it is we're actually talking about. Have you got any thoughts around that and uh, how to do that as effectively as possible? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it takes me back to the conversation about going to Tokyo, Simon, where you know, there was there was a lot of visual information there in front of you, but n not much uh, to help you make sense, maybe, of that environment. Yes. So we're all sense makers, you know, as, as humans. That's you know, we're, we're constantly making sense of the environment around us and from a meeting perspective having the being able to capture and self-generate so the group self-generates that that information as you progress through that conversation um to help make sense of you know where are we coming from where are we going what are the options available to us what different perspectives do we have in the room is a much more powerful way of reaching a decision or having an engaging, productive meeting um, than simply, like you say, writing in notebooks or entering information onto a laptop, which may or may not be connected to the screen. But generally speaking, it's pen and paper in the room, helping um, participants to understand the journey of that conversation, bearing in mind that not everybody makes sense at the same pace. Yeah. So even by having that information up there, you'll have the people who can really process this quickly, but also you'll have people who take more time to process. And merely having that on the wall so that it's always visible is much more engaging and accessible than than having something on the slide, because once the slide is gone, it's gone. Yeah, I think it's a really powerful point. Now, a lot of people will be familiar, familiar with the concept of brainstorming and, and kind of creating ideas there. What have you got? as a suggested expansion of the toolkit that would help somebody who's new to meetings, perhaps maybe a new manager and they're trying to get the better engagement from their team and they want to just try sort of slightly different techniques to do that. Have you got any suggestions that a manager could, could have in applying some of these skills to their team meetings? Um, I think the first thing I would say, Simon, is think clearly about what's the question you're asking. So absolutely framing that question to the group clearly is key. It could be, for example, you know, if anything were possible, how might we transform the service we provide to our clients? How might we transform the process that we use for this particular thing? So being being clear on your question. You know, sometimes the best ideas come from the simplest of processes. 
for example, just having a very large sheet of paper, blank paper, could be on the wall, could even be on the table. You know, quite often meeting rooms have yeah. tables now, which technology is wired through. They can't be moved. But having you know paper in the table and then enabling participants to just to the freedom to write their ideas on sticky notes or card or whatever, and then having them out in front of you so that you can see the thinking. And then you can start to theme it, cluster it, uh, work out what's common, but also where there may be outliers or some different uh, opinions. But I'd suggest powerful questions. Keep it simple. Yeah, great. Great. Really good advice. I, I had a really nice experience where I had this idea of using modeling play, plasticine um, mm. type thing with uh, some groups last year and got um, them to create a model of a, the landscape that they were working in. It was a kind of a strategy workshop. And it was really interesting how the three different people we had in the room at that stage kind of just mapped out the landscape, same landscape, very, very differently. The way that they were seeing the situation was very different. And uh, there were some things in common, of course, but their visualization of the 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 industry and everything was fascinating. You know, some went into mm -hmm. 3D, others it was, you know, kind of yeah. Venn diagram almost uh, using the, the, the clay and... and um, yeah, I've used that quite a few times in the last uh, couple of years, and it's really well. One, I think it's it's very, I'm very inquisitive in terms of what's going to come out of it because you genuinely I have no idea what the, what's in their head. It's a great way of getting what's in their head out on the table. But two, it's a it's a really interesting use of metaphor and mm. analogy to be able to move a decision on. I found and and for them to actually sometimes inform the story that they're going to tell you know so in the creation of something it's a tree or it's a mm. it's an engine or something like that 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 metaphor often carries through the rest of the the conversation of the group uh, when they yeah. find something that really resonates and works for them yeah and, absolutely um, yeah I, I recall a, a meeting where um i think we had about 13 groups in this very large space all visualizing the future of this um, function and service that the, the, the group were providing to the wider organization. And each group was producing some very different visual metaphors and uh, depictions of, of what the future might be. There was a lot of commonality, but there was also a lot of difference. And also the process, as you say, of, of bringing it to life was was fun in itself. Yeah, I think that's one of the magical things about it. You know, when I use the modeling clay, a lot of people say, oh, I haven't I haven't played with this for years. And, yeah. and you kind of that inner child almost is let free into the room to express themselves. And and uh, it comes. Yeah, <clears throat> so I've had a couple of people just do not like it at all. It's like, what are we doing? This is not work. You know, it's got oh, my brain doesn't think that way. But most people, you know, once they get their hands working with the clay, it seems to seems to work for them pretty well. Yeah. yeah. And just one more point there, Simon, is that, you know, you can encourage groups to build a model that conveys the future or whatever it might be. And that's great. Uh, I often encourage groups not only to do the task, but also to maybe spend time thinking about, well, how, were, how did we work together when we were creating this thing? What did we yeah. notice about each other? And it could be, you know, we noticed that 
so-and-so really didn't find it very easy but you know we managed to to do to divide the tasks or to to be able to bring that person in without them feeling disengaged so it's it's kind of on the task but also thinking about how the team's working as well which can add an extra dimension of power to it yeah wonderful now I've I've mentioned your visualization of meetings quite a few times today because I it inspires me. I love seeing the pictures there and you know some of the illustrations are meters long. What's the what's the largest uh, diagram that you've created or one of your team has created? Um I think there was one about 9 meters long, Simon. Um, wow. Which yeah was was a bit of a monster, and uh, was was great in terms of um, participants being able to almost get a you know feel a sense of ownership and engagement. They were there when that was created, and that was created as a response to their input. Um, yes. Now, how does something like that? Maybe not the nine meter version, although the rules probably apply. I mean, do you have a sense of the meeting's agenda before you start one of those? Um recordings yeah. that you know kind of what the zones are going to be and that but could you just talk us through what's the what's the creative process to to help that come about yeah i mean always a conversation with the meeting owner or the meeting yeah. leader sometimes those people are the same sometimes they're different sometimes we might be working with a facilitator who's who's very much uh, responsible for designing and leading that meeting so i you know an absolute must is knowing what the running order or the agenda as is often known is and that helps us to i guess very broadly map out how that graphic might appear of course sure. the the context and the subject matter will help in terms of the type of imagery that we might produce but yeah as a basic minimum just knowing what those chunks if you like of conversation might be and also what the process is used because sometimes it's plenary it's presentation other times it might be breakout sessions and and all of that will have an impact on the way we harvest that information. Sometimes it's just easy to hear. Other times we need to go find. Um, so as a minimum, just knowing what that flow will be. Yeah. There's something around um, the physical contact with felt tip and paper. And obviously there's visualization that can be done on you know iPads and, and, and different uh, devices in that way as well. Um, where's your preference? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think my preference is pen and paper. That might maybe reflect my age more than anything. Um, <laughs> you know, the, having a big chart in the room and being able to capture, you know, the information that really makes important sense to people is is great. You know, there's a there's just more of an organic and authentic sort of performance element to that. And my in my experience, participants engage with that a lot more. And particularly, actually, those in, in tech sectors actually seem to enjoy the pen and paper more than seeing something developed digitally. Um, having said that, you know, technology is such where it's, it's very easy now to create something impactful on an iPad. Um, in fact, you know, there are, there are even screen covers for iPads which are designed to feel like paper. So yes. you're not losing some yeah. of that resistance when you're using it. So I like both. If I had to choose, I'd, I'd be old school. Well, and um, again, I know that you also are stockist for a particular brand of pens and, and the likes yes. in, the, in the UK. If you had to choose just maybe two or three markers, which what would you go for? Wow. Okay. 
So, um, so yeah, we're we're a, a reseller for Neuland pens. Neuland are a wonderful maker of pens that are used by facilitators and trainers, graphic recorders. My my, I think my top of the list would be the the number one outliner wedge nib. Um, that's great, you know. Uh, we're just, getting very just, specialist here, but for those well, that know, those that yeah. know, this is this very important information. So yeah, okay, so, absolutely. You did so ask the number question. One. Number one, <laughs> number one. Outline the wedge nib. I love that pen. The um, I'm also a bit of a fan of the brand new um, uh, big one art brushes. So this is like a, a you know it's an art brush nib, but this is a big chunky one. Yeah, and yeah. Um, they're great. You can do some lovely text and um, lovely strokes with those, and uh, it's just a just a, a nice pen to work with and really quite yeah. versatile. Um, I think if I had to choose another one. Um, I think I would probably go for what's called the cover, actually. Fairly new. It's a white marker pen. Comes in a variety of sizes, but you can, it means that you can use black um, flip chart paper or dark colored cards. So um, oh, okay. it just adds yeah. a slightly different dimension. And we've, we've got some black flip chart paper and that's quite different for people to see. It's just a, yes. just a positive disruptor. So the white pen's great. Uh, and I encourage anyone to try a, using a black flip chart pad with white pen and see what I've happens. I've never done that. That might no. be my next challenge. My next yeah. challenge. And there are metallic pens as well, so there are even colours too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad that you're you're doing that, and uh, thank you for sharing that. That that was more for the the facilitator geeks who are listening. That, yes, that, that, that will appeal to, I'm sure. But, Absolutely. Uh, uh, but uh, and of which I am one. Okay. Tom, we need to start wrapping this up and um, just bring this to a conclusion. I, I guess as you think about the the lessons that you've learned and you, you think about your early 20-year-old self, what advice would you give to him? Take time to reflect and to make sense of what's happening around you and the experiences you have. There's a big emphasis on, you know, on doing and leading teams, of course, and being in the business, in the organization, making decisions. And sometimes it's, I think, reflection and learning from what one does is often put to one side because it, it's, it's not necessarily seen as a business imperative. It's not getting the to-do list done. So I'd, I'd encourage more time to spend just uh, reflecting on on what just happened. And that could be in the car, on the train. It doesn't have to be formal time, but just using time well to do that. Yeah. Great counsel. Thank you. Um, Really appreciate what you've shared today and I'm grateful for the work you're doing, um, helping people to be more effective in their meetings, whether that's you facilitating it or uh, you and your team recording that information and um, yeah, helpful for the, the hints and tips that you've shared today as well. One of my takeaways, actually, when you were talking about sense-making, people being sense-making sense uh, animals, um, but I like this reflection on not everyone operating at the same pace. Whilst I know that, recognizing the value of visual uh, elements in a meeting to support the different pace at which people are working. It's been a really helpful reminder for even bringing that into my consciousness even more. I'm sure that will help me to be more effective with the next group that I'm working with um, and recognizing the value of the content being visualized for different paces. 
So thank you for that. Thank you. Amongst many other things. Tom, it's been a pleasure to spend this time with you and you sharing your wisdom. I wish you the continued great success with your business and and all that you're doing with uh, the Neuland products as well. And um, uh, yeah, have a have a great rest of the year. Yeah, thank you, Simon. Really enjoyed it. It's been good to catch up. Great. Thank you. Our after dinner leadership conversation is finished. Our guest has left and you're still here. Now, of course, you're very welcome. I'm glad that you found the conversation to be engaging. There's a few things that I'd like to ask you to do before you do leave. The first one of those is if you can stop and think about somebody who you think would enjoy this conversation, a friend, a colleague, perhaps an aspiring leader. The second thing is to stop and hit subscribe or follow. And then the third thing is to start doing something. Perhaps there's a little idea or a concept that we've been discussing today that you think you could apply even a little bit tomorrow, tonight, and to put it into action. I encourage you to use this as a catalyst to do something, do something different, do something more interesting, do something more exciting. And thank you so much for joining us. And please tune in again for another After Dinner Leadership Conversation. You can leave now. I need to go and do the dishes.